Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thanks so much for the introduction. I'm Amanda Goldstein. I'm an associate professor of English at UC Berkeley, and I'm delighted to be your moderator this evening for tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club here in Mill Valley, California. I'm joined here tonight by two significant, brilliant, congenial Berkeley colleagues and experts on Greek philosophy and classics, James Porter and Anthony Long. There could be no better people to answer the question, are you a Stoic or Epicurean? Then these two, must you choose? Why? And if we ever needed the wisdom of ancient thought, the gambit of this panel is, is now is certainly the time. So we're so pleased to have you both this evening. Welcome to Marin. And I guess I thought I would kick us off by acknowledging that the words Stoic and Epicurean are still with us. I and mean, I wanted to ask uh, Tony and Jim how contemporary understandings of those words, those adjectives, might get in the way of our beginning to understand the teaching of, of Stoicism and Epicureanism as ancient philosophies. So, um, I mean, the first reaction to Stoic is probably, ooh, um, you know, look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, of English, and it'll say uh, repressing of emotion and, uh, you know, uh, trying to be calm in adversity. And, you know, there's some, some truth in that. But it would, it, it's a, a distortion in all kinds of ways of what ancient Stoicism was all about. Um, the word came into English at the end of the 16th century when there were some pretty horrible things happening in, in the European world. There were... Hun- Religious wars were horrible, and um, people were, you know, up against it a great deal of the time. And so they started to read some of the Roman Stoic authors who did try to come up with ideas about how you might deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But this sort of rather grim side of Stoicism uh, took over, and it's now become, you know, we'll talk about that, the the revival of modern Stoicism has moved in a a somewhat different direction, but there was also an ancient side to Stoicism, which we'll we'll talk about later. But but just to say now, I think that the kind of repressive aspect of ancient Stoicism totally, uh, modern Stoicism, I mean, totally kind of uh, overlooks the, the social aspects of the philosophy. Okay, so um, Epicureanism today, I suppose, uh, has a very negative connotation. If you're an Epicure, that may or may not be negative, depending on whether you are or are not an an Epicure. (laughs) But it means someone who loves good food and and takes pleasure in simple things, or maybe complicated things. Um, Epicureanism did have that connotation in antiquity. But I think it's important to um, realign it with... uh, a whole history of, uh, of a tradition of looking at nature and the world, which extends back to the 5th century with Democritus, who was the first atomist. Epicurus was a later uh, proponent of atomism, and he redesigned the theory and changed it to meet new needs around 300 B.C. And then his gr- we know more about Epicurus from his later descendant, uh, Lucretius, who was Roman, writing around 90 BC, um, who uh, was in love with both Democritus and Epicurus, was a poet, which Epicurus was not, um, and uh, and he ch- he changed the philosophy in some ways. It's not clear entirely whether he did 
re, uh, re, recalibrate the philosophy or not. Anyway, we have a tradition that runs all the way into um, Roman society. And then by the time you get to later, uh, later developments in Rome, people are going more or less to uh, doing a smorgasbord. They do a little bit of Epicureanism, a little bit of Stoicism. They talk about atoms and void when they want to, and they talk about Stoic principles of life at the same time. Um, so the two philosophies blend together very much. So probably by the time you get to the first century AD, um, the question is practically a moot question, I suppose, because one can be both, one can be eclectic. And maybe that's a little bit closer to the way we are today. If we wanted to decide whether or not we want to be one or the other, we don't have to necessarily choose between them, but see some of the common threads that run through them both. One thing that's already come up in particularly your answer, Jim, but where immediately to discuss Epicureanism was to get into a, a, a scientific theory of the subatomic, of, of, of atomism and, this, and the invisible substructure of the cosmos. I think that one thing that's easy to forget when we think about contemporary interest in philosophy, and we're, we, we can talk, we have a whole array of kind of neo-Stoic handbooks all over the table to kind of indicate a, a, a revival, mostly on the side of self-help and therapeutics and life coaching of, of, of these forms of ancient philosophy. Maybe part of this is what brings you here. But for each of them, uh, the philosophy was not only centered on an ethics and a kind of a mode of, of um, handling being a subject in the world and comp- with oneself, but each of these ancient philosophies also had a physics and a logic, and that and and so I thought I, I actually wanted to ask if maybe we could compare and contrast a little bit the physics, the natural philosophy, in which the ethical disposition is perhaps rooted or without which it doesn't work, and to ask to ask a little bit about that conjuncture about why why those three dimensions were necessary. For a complete philosophy. Thank you very much, Amanda. I think just to preface these remarks, to remember how, to realise just how how old these philosophies are. I mean, they are starting in the fourth century BCE, so three hundred years before the, the birth of the reputed birth of Christ. So very, very ancient. They're developing in Athens, which is the you know the great city of the, of, uh, of the European world at the time, but in a, in a somewhat of a decline from its sort of imperial greatness in a hundred years before. Amanda has mentioned that science has be, is, is evolving at this time. A thing very much to remember about understanding both philosophies is that the old Greek religion, which you know has its wonderful gay you know mythologies of, of, that we all know about, but um, uh, is really of no value to people who you know want a kind of serious way of understanding life. And science has begun to develop quite seriously in the last 150 150 years before. And so when the Stoics and the Epicureans start their teaching in the end of the 4th century, um, the old gods can't be accepted. Epicurus takes the notion that, well... There is an idea of God, but we can't really understand, you know, quite what gods would actually be if they if they kind of existed. Stoics take a rather different view. They think of the divine as something like a vitalist force which is pervading the world. 
and they comport their physical theories accordingly. The Epicureans, having an atomistic view, which, you know, has been enormously influential, of course. I mean, it was tremendously far ahead of its time. It wasn't an experimental theory of atoms, but it had the foundation of building blocks of the, of the physical universe. And the Stoics having a very different kind of view, but one, I think, which has become very much more interesting, I think, for us today in terms of our understanding of the relationship between life and physics and chemistry and biology, a sort of vitalist view of the world. And so both of these ethical theories, the Epicurean and the Stoic, on the other hand, are nonetheless founded upon a, a kind of physics, a kind of, not chemistry in our modern sense, but an understanding of the physical universe. And so the idea of a good life is on both sides to try and figure out how you can fit into the universe. One might want to say that each philosophy is, in its own different way, asking how, how, to, be, how to be at home in the world. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so the... Um, uh, the, Epicure- the Epicurean or atomist view of uh, Epicurus seems to have come along and tried to turn Democritian atomism into a full-blooded theory of ethics of how to behave in the world. And the notion behind it was that if you understand, and I think this runs through both of them, as you just said, both philosophies, Stoicism and Epicureanism, if you want to figure out how to behave in the world, you have to understand what nature is. And you have to understand your relationship to nature and to recognize that you are a part of nature as well. And that's the, that is why each of them had their own view of what nature was, their own physics. But on the basis of this understanding, they evolved um, a kind of ethical relationship to the world. <clears throat> the, the odd thing about um, atomism is that it's looking at the world as being made of atoms and void is not exactly a great way to relate to nature because you ask yourself, uh, how can I fit into the world if that's what it is? It's scary as heck. And um, a lot of what the what Epicurus and Lucretius do, it seems at time, times, is to say nature is this, it's objectively what it is, and we can't change it. And therefore, we have to live within those constraints. And there's, they're trying to develop a kind of uh, assurance, a rationality that overcomes the fears that develop in the world from a false understanding of nature, including a false understanding of theology. So they do, for instance, the Epicurus does have a theory of what the gods are, but his basic claim is don't let the gods get in the way of your happiness. Don't fret about what gods can do to you. And so he conveniently puts them off somewhere away from us. They're remote. They aren't worried about us and we shouldn't be worried about them and that takes care of the god problem and then we're just left with nature in some other form um but there's always this strange kind of tension and interplay between uh the terrifying threat that you have when you look at the natural world as they display it maybe less so in the case of the stoics and maybe you could talk a little bit about that um and uh and the reassurance that one feels knowing aha that's what this is and I don't have to worry about it the way I don't have to worry about the gods being up there no longer requiring me to do sacrifices to them in order to placate their horrific wills. Um, 
Oh, yeah, I, I think that this is, that's, I just wanted to invite you to elaborate a little bit on this kind of cosmological or cosmic difference, because it's a pretty big deal mm. that the Epicureans, on the one hand, figure the natural universe as, um, com- as generated by sheer accident, by chance and contingency, in a way that happened to take. Uh, so even even law and what sort of assumed to, you know, appears to be the regularities and the measurable um, uh, laws of scientific reality have their origin in kind of accidental collisions of atoms that were fortunate enough to cohere. <laughs> um, and the Stoic version is quite different, a determined teleological yeah. replete structure. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question, Amanda. And I think it brings us into a very contemporary question. We're still, you know, if you talk to my um, chemistry colleagues at Cal, we're still very much in the dark about how life actually started. And another question which was related to that is, you know, is is the universe in some way uh, a product of design? Uh, there's a movement, of course, quite alive in certain parts of the world called intelligent design which in many ways corresponds to the way the Stoics wanted to think of the world, or the atomistic world, where everything is a product of the chance, random connections of atoms, even though it still produces the same wonderful and and, and sometimes horrible world that we actually live in. So uh, to come back a little more closely to uh, the, the, the direct question... Both philosophies are highly empirical. They're they're interested in trying to understand the world on the basis of what we actually observe. And something I was just talking about before we came in with Amanda, both philosophies uh, try to answer the question of how humans should behave by looking at the behavior of newborn infants. And we have something which they call the cradle argument. The cradle argument runs like this. You take a child before it's been, as it were, you know, shaped or some might say corrupted by the world and look at how it behaves. Well, a, a newborn child will cry. It will uh, be soothed by being foster, uh, you know, co- uh, covered. And, and the Epicureans inferred from this that the primary drive of all creatures is pleasure on the one hand and avoidance of discomfort and pain on the other. And they build their ethical theory around that. And it's, of course, a very plausible account of behavior. We all love pleasure in some sense, and we all dislike pain. The Stoics, however, disagreed. They said, well, of course, you can explain the the infant's behavior that, that way. But look at a toddler. A toddler will try to walk, say, at the age of 9, 10, 12 months, It'll fall down, it'll cry, it'll hurt itself, but it starts up again. It's not simply being motivated by pleasure or pain, or avoidance of pain. It wants to become a grown-up person eventually. And so the natural drive of all living creatures is to fulfill themselves as the kind of creature they are. Um, the, 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 The nestling bird wants to fly. The toddler wants to walk. And so the Stoics then said, no, the basic driving forces of human beings are not the desire for pleasure or avoidance of pain, natural though those are, but it is self-fulfillment. And so around those two poles, they built built their their ethical theories. So one one further uh, interesting facet of these uh, both philosophies, I think, is that they by recognizing our natural origins 
and recognizing that we are as much part of nature as nature is somehow uh, the world that we face, is that <clears throat> we carry within us um, a, a number of limits. And the theory of nature that they build up is also a theory that constrains what we can do. And there's, if perhaps we like being constrained, but we need to get used to it as well. One of the greatest constraints for a living creature is that it no longer, at some point, no longer will live. It has to face death. And death is the ultimate limit uh, that both philosophies keep on reminding us is there and therefore shouldn't control the way we act. Um, so Epicureanism in particular, I think, cultivates uh, an awareness and appreciation that death is a part of nature. All things change. They're, nothing is forever. Nothing lasts. The world itself was once a young baby and then has become a full mature uh, creature that is soon going to pass into probably nothingness at some point because all po- permutations of possibility are, are there within the, the natural world. The world will perish. We just better get used to it. And um, confronting your own mortality and actually learning to recognize that what makes life valuable is, in fact, the fact that it's limited by certain things, including its own its own terminus, uh, is the greatest um, challenge that Epicurus, I suppose, gave to us. So his point was, on the one hand, death is nothing for nothing to us. Um, when we are dead, then we will no longer recognize that we are dead. And so therefore, that's nothing to fear. So fear of death is a a great motivator in much behavior, and recognizing that that is not something to fear, but rather something to embrace. This is the greatest, I think, one of the greatest um, um, uh, contributions that um, is still valid today in Epicureanism. Um, and the the sense that uh, or of a philosophy that can cause you to enable you to relinquish your fear of death and the different forms of pathological behavior accumulation of power accumulation of stuff that our fear of mortality uh, might induce is a big part of I think the Epicurean promise of freedom. So that was the next question I wanted to ask: is you know moving towards the realm of a an adult. Ethics, if we want to pass the cradle, um, what is the what is the understanding of freedom that each philosophy offers? Um, uh, and and I wanted to turn to the the Stoics on this point next. Yeah, I think there are actually quite a few um, affinities between the Stoics and the Epicureans here. But let me just focus on, on on Stoicism. And I'd say that if you're asking really why why is Stoicism undergoing, as it is, a very considerable sort of popular revival today, I think the most uh, single uh, important thing to be aware of is that the Stoics, the ancient Stoics, and the modern Stoics have picked up on it, is that we are innately equipped, you know, of course it depends on your environment and upbringing to some extent, but we are sort of congenitally uh, equipped with resourcefulness which I think a lot of the facets of modern life have obscured. Uh, The Stoics called it rationality, which is a rather scary word. Uh, But they also talked about decision and that we we don't have to be conditioned by the way the world serves itself up to us. We have the ability to stand back. And in standing back and kind of 
one way to think of it is if you're, you know, experiencing some great annoyance, instead of reacting immediately and saying, you know, get out of my way or, oh, how horrible, just step back a moment, take a deep, take a deep breath, ask such a basic question as, well, does it really matter? Or could it have been avoided? And freedom, the question I'm is putting to me, freedom for the Stoics is not, it's not political freedom. Uh, of course, many people in the world lack political freedom. In the time when Stoicism was being developed, the, the, the basic economy was run on slave labor. But the greatest mod, ancient Stoic writer, I think, that we can read today, Epictetus, was actually born a slave. And in writing the little book that has been mentioned here, How to Be Free, I try to explain that his notion of freedom is a disposition of your own choosing. You, you can choose. He put it this way, taking the example of, of Socrates. Socrates, who was, of course, imprisoned for sub- supposedly subversing the state in Athens. He says, Epictetus says of Socrates, Socrates was not in prison. Well, of course he was. No, you're only in prison when you are there by your own choice, your own free will. I gave some lectures a, a few years ago in San Quentin, and I, I very uh, boldly, rashly perhaps, presented this theory to, the, to the, my, my, um, the prisoners whom I was talking to. And this idea that prison is really a state of mind rather than actual incarceration. And I got an in, amazing degree of, of support from them. Uh, one of the things that impressed me hugely was that none of them said... I've been. A, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a victim of, uh, of the outside world. I, sh- I, I don't deserve to be here. They all accepted some sense that they were actually uh, uh, deservedly in, in, imprisoned. But this notion that freedom doesn't have to be seen in physical freedom, but it's actually a mental state. That was that was the that was the issue that the Stoics particularly wanted to. Yeah, and and perhaps then that's. Um, this is very. This is a common thread that runs through both of these philosophies: that the mind can conquer nature in some way. The, the mind is always a part of nature, but it can also transcend the world. And uh, in an, and in some sense, so for both uh, philosophies, the mind is material. It's made of matter. It's substantial, um, and yet it has capacities that exceed even what a body is capable of doing. So there's a great deal of comfort coming from this notion that the mind is that powerful. Um, I think at the same time, um, the mind is powerful, but only within limits. We are not gods. We can't run, you know, 30 miles an hour. Maybe some of you can. I can't. Um, But with our minds, we perhaps can uh, go much faster than our bodies allow us. The speed of thought is actually a a subject that they talk about quite a bit. And the speed of thought is blindingly fast. And we possess that. Um, and also with the mind, we can adjust to circumstances. So we may not be able to change them, but we can swerve away from them. Um, so we, avoidance was mentioned, and that's precisely one of the ways that we get around the world. There's a, here's a quotation from Marcus Aurelius in his Meditations, which is really called, uh, sometimes in some titles, it's said, uh, To Myself. It's notes that he wrote to himself while he was on the campaigns. He said, If the cucumber is, is a cucumber bitter, then cast it aside. Are there brambles in the path? Then step out of the way. So you can see this interesting tension between uh, uh, something which is in your way and your way. You just simply move around it, uh, make a decision not to be bothered by it. And that's a kind of uh, active passivity, I think. It's hard to 
explain what that is. It's a kind of action that is also receptivity to reception to what is available to you. Um, so adapting to circumstances is probably one of the one of the inheritances that, that they um, that they both absorbed out of uh, an earlier philosoph- philosophy called the cynics. But mm. we don't need to go into that. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, Do you want to add? Yes. No, I mean I think just just to add a little more on this uh, point which Jim has just made and the point about freedom and where where these philosophies I think each of them in its different way can be of great value today. I think we live in a culture which is very keen on, I think, um, victimhood. Uh, you know, n- n- how, how badly I've been treated. I'm not, I'm not my, my, my dignity is being undermined, etc., etc. So all of these can inhibit people, of course, from, uh, you know, uh, getting, getting ahead in their, in their own way. I think the idea of, of resourcefulness, the, the, the sense that there is a, a depth to the human personality... Uh, that we can marshal in our own good and, and very much in our social good. We haven't, we haven't quite talked about this, and I think it needs to be emphasized because a lot of the modern adaptations of these philosophies, especially in the case of Stoicism, do seem to be somewhat, you know, navel-watching. I mean, they're very much concerned with how am I doing, but they're not asking, you know, what we all need to be asking how how am i relating to my social world whether whether it's my family or my my milia my country and they both philosophies are intensely concerned with this the epicureans well jim will talk talk about that making friendship a tremendous value stoics again saying as marcus aurelius says that you know uh I get up in the morning and i have to do what he says it well it puts an agendered way a man's job and what is a man's job? It is to re- relate to my fellow human beings. And, and so the, the notion that one's concerned with oneself is at the same time a socially uh, uh, um, sensitive uh, way of being is, is, is crucial to these. And I think that, that hasn't been emphasized enough. Mm. Can, I, can I ask a follow-up on that question? Because I think that one of the concerns that's levied towards... Stoicism and Epicureanism in different senses is actually a sense of, it well targets their apparent withdrawal or marginalization from the political or a kind of minimization of the political. Um, and, you know, so the Stoic uh, uh, apatheia, you know, so a sense of, of being able to, to walk through the world uh, untroubled, having dismissed those things that are not within your purview to control, um, is at the root of our word for apathy. And, and there's a real question both of, of political apathy, but also of, of political conformity. When you spoke of a person doing their prescribed job or role in the society, their freedom or, or unfreedom is a mental question that's internal and doesn't necessarily license or um, legitimize resistance or, 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 or alteration to a social, the social hierarchy in which they're imbricated. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. And similarly, the Epicureans seem, seem to advocate a retreat from the realm of, of, uh, of civic life. So, 
Um, very good question. Um, when you think of when these two philosophies, you know, think of them in their historical context. So, first of all, going back into the into the Greek fourth century BCE, um, and then you know gradually moving into the Roman world. Well, the, the, it's the Roman world, perhaps, which is the most uh, best for us to talk to about here, because it's the Roman sources that we have. And I mean, Seneca, uh, Epictetus. Um, and Marcus Aurelius, because extraordinary extremes here, Marcus Aurelius, the most powerful person in the world at this time, and Epictetus born a slave. It's just, and Marcus Aurelius being influenced by Epictetus is always a kind of amazing kind of thought to hold in mind. But I think uh, Amanda's question about political activism, it wasn't, I think, I mean, the, this is perhaps the easy answer, um, it wasn't um, really an option in, in many ways, uh, there were some very bad uh, Roman emperors. Have anyone have seen you, uh, I Claudius, and will know about you know those characters, you know, and, and you don't know the, the, the movie series I Claudius. Yeah, very bad. Okay, so you know, <laughs> Nero, particularly horrible. He, he was the emperor at the time of uh, of Seneca. Uh, a number of prominent Romans did resist the emperors, and there are stories in Epictetus about how one or two of them, you know, were, were ended their lives under Roman emperors. Uh, the next one, uh, Domitian, uh, the philosophers were banished from Rome. Uh, but, but I mean, anything like a kind of Marxist appeal to break off your chains and, and rise up. I mean, that kind of revolutionary um, uh, access, uh, you know, and, 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 and goal just doesn't seem to have happened in the ancient world. Uh, and they, I mean, it wasn't that the Stoics um, didn't um, advocate involvement in the political. They did. But the, the extent that it was a, a practical proposition... Was, was very limited, I think. Mm. Mm. Here's, here's another um, way into the same problem. So, <clears throat> first of all, I think it's um, been a misreading of the Stoics and the Epicureans that they are navel-gazers, as you were suggesting. And part of the fault may lie with, um, maybe some of you have read Michel Foucault, who wrote <laughs> A Care of the Self, uh, History of Sexuality, Parts 2 and 3 uh, books. And um, the uh, Care of the Self is a very bad description of what the ancients are actually, these two philosophies are doing. They're more interested in caring for others than they are in themselves. It's extremely symptomatic that the first opening chapter, first book of Marcus Aurelius's meditations is a um, um, homage that he pays to all the, all, it's a thank you to everybody that's ever contributed to, to his life. And he starts with his parents and he goes on to mm-hmm. his extended family. And so it's the, the meditations are written, I'd say, to himself. And what he starts off by doing is acknowledging the, the role of those in his world around him who've made him what he is. And he thanks them for that. And this idea that you shouldn't care for yourself, but you should pay attention to what others or what's happening in another soul. That is the primary, uh, I think, the primary focus of what his, his ethics is about. And I think the same could be said of, of, of the Epicureans as well and other Stoics. The um, a crude way of, of, suge- of getting uh, into the problem would be to say that they're more interested in social, uh, the, the social world than the political world. Mm-hmm. And you could even say that they don't ignore politics, but they know that politics is a source of headaches. So why get into it? They have a bottom-up theory, which is if you can 
create a society around you that will change and bubble up to the surface and eventually change the politics. And that's not such a bad lesson for today either. Um, They believe that the entire universe is a social network of elements which are combined together in federations and confederations. And every part exists in every other part, in the sense. And so they look at the world as somehow fundamentally a social, a social being. Um, so the, the idea that you could live off alone and be a happy Epicurean or Stoic is a kind of interesting problem. I think it's impossible. I think that, a, a, that this would go against the very the very uh, idea of what it is to be a Stoic, say, um, or an Epicurean. Um, so, so politics, withdrawing from politics may be the necessary first step to building up a social um, resilience of some sort. I said the bad word, resilience. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. There's another aspect, I think, which um, what Jim has been saying, it's, it's, it's the political, the external political, uh, is not at all ignored by either philosophy, But there's also an element of the internal, which I think is important to talk about. We've talked a little bit about divinity. Um, Both philosophies, and Jim, you'll you'll talk about it for the Lucretian uh, perspective, but both philosophies, I would say, have quite a deep sense of, uh, to use a modern word, spirituality. Epictetus says, um, when you put the curtains up and close the door and, and darken the room, don't think you are alone. You are never alone because you have your own daimon. Daimon means a kind of divinity within inside you. And that divinity never sleeps. Now you can, th- and, and, and he says your, your obligation is not to the Roman emperor, but it's to serve this internal divinity. What is this internal divinity? Well, it's something like your ideal self. It's something like conscience it's sort of your better angels but it's it seems to me again it's something we've lost completely in our modern world uh, i mean it, it's not religion in any kind of church going sense it's something about the self it, the the deepest as it were reaches of the human person and and along with that goes the idea which again i think we can do much more with than we are doing the idea of dignity not, not, not the dignity of oh, you're disrespecting me. Not, not that kind of dignity, but the dignity about yourself, looking in your own sort of internal mirror, and saying, "Am I, am I living up to myself? Am I living up to my own potential?" And that is a kind of spirituality which the Stoics, I think, uh, uh, capture in each one of them in their own different way. Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 New Year's Eve parties in San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org 
Now back to our program. Um, I think you can do something. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure too. if there's um, a, a, an easy equivalent for spirituality of that kind. In epi- sort of, um, yeah. You know, passing on the torch, um, the notion that there's, there are, there's another generation coming. Oh, yes. okay. When the old, when, 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 when at the end of uh, Lucretius Book 3, nature says to the old guy, you know, you know, it's time for you to move on. Make room for other people now. I think that's a kind of, perhaps it's a solidarity. Yeah. But it's, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's right. Um, probably for Lucretius, that inner divinity would be, just be the soul, which is its inner sanctum, the inner sanctum of any human being. Um, and understanding what the soul does is um, the, the core, I guess, of that. Probably also a recognition that um, within every creature there's a there's life, and uh, life itself is the ultimate attachment. Even if, in the greater scheme of things, life has no real value per se, and that's that's the double edge of Epicureanism that makes it kind of uh, difficult for us to accept. It's uh, as he says to Memmius, the person that uh, he's addressing his poem to. I'm going to uh, give you some bitter medicine, but I'm going to sweeten the, the rim with honey so that when you drink it, you won't taste the medicine in all of its bitterness. And that honey turns out to be the doctrine of Epicureanism itself, also poetry, um, the poetry that he's singing, uh, that he's singing. He does say at some points, I'm singing to you. Um, and uh, an appreciation for um, life within the limits that life grants us. And what about and friendship dances around the world? Of course, yeah. telling us to to be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you want to speak a little bit about friendship? Um, I <laughs> forgot to reread that article. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, friendship is uh, yeah, absolutely crucial to the Epicurean community, which Epicurus founded a community in Athens. So he did withdraw to a garden outside the boundaries of the city, within the limits of the city, but outside at the very limits of the city. Um, but he founded it with uh, fellow Epicureans and uh, created a community of um, which became the core through which his doctrines became uh, passed on from one generation to another. Uh, friendship was crucial to him, whether a friend was alive or dead. Even the gods could be considered your friends. Um, so communicating and writing was part of that, part of that uh, expression as well. Yeah, and I think the um, the Stoic way of looking at that is um, again it, it picks up a bit on Amanda's point about politics. Stoic politics, perhaps at its deepest, is what might be called cosmopolitan politics. It's not nationalistic politics. And in relation to friendship, Stoic said that when one sort of you know Stoic, a really really committed Stoic, uh, acts. All other Stoics are acted upon, and and you can even benefit people you don't know. Uh, you know, you can have friends, as it were, with other. It's not a matter of actually contacting people, but it's a kind of community of of outlook and and mindset, mm. uh, which again, I think, is a thought we can do quite a lot with today. This sort of notion of a of the Greek word for it was homonoia, thinking thinking the sort of. You know, not not in a kind of ideological way, but sharing sentiments and so forth. 
But, but but let's not idealize both of these camps. They were at war with each other. <laughs> they wrote reams of pa- po- paper uh, of philosophy against each other all the time. And I think once you once said this in a class was the most mem- one of the most memorable lines you said, which was that the greatest nightmare of a Stoic was to wake up as an Epicurean. <laughs> so one could have friends, but but they had to be in one's own philosophical camp. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, that is true. That is absolutely right. I mean, there was a sort of sectarianism there. And yet at the same time, especially as the, the centuries went by, Seneca, in his uh, wonderful set of letters, he writes letters to a friend about his stoic thoughts and experiences. But he, in the first 30 of these, he ends each letter with a, a saying from Epicurus, and he sort of says, well, I shouldn't really be doing that. I'm going over to the other camp, but why not? You know, he's, he's got something worthwhile to say. But you're right. I mean, there, I think in, originally there was more ideological yes. combat yeah. than later. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you've emphasized so well what the kind of points of convergence are, at least from our distantiated perspective. What are some of the pressure points what were they fighting about i mean one one thing that's it seems to me for just as a for instance you know really different to kind of um build your model for ethical action uh, and your and cosmic not even just cosmopolitan but cosmic citizenship on an understanding that you're participating in a divinely imminently imminently and divinely undergirded and intended kind of network and this epicurean sense of kind of um of 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 friendship and ethics mattering because because this transient present is what we have because the relationships that we build in a universe of atoms and void is it um that imminent that 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 contingently produced, collectively produced meaning would be all we've got. That's one suggestion, but what were they uh, fighting about? Well, I think in the case of the Stoics, it's, it's sensual pleasure. Mm. It's the, you know, the, the titillation of the senses. Uh, I mean, at, at all levels, if, if the, the pleasures of food and drink and sex, of course, they accepted that they were natural. But if you say that these are good and good in themselves, and if you say those are what we should be living for, and aiming at, then the Stoics think we have threatened the other kind of values which the Stoics are so keen on, which are the, you know could be described as as you know the social virtues. And if if push comes to shove, if you're going to you know pleasure is going to combat those, then then our whole you know edifice of of the good life will collapse. I think that's that's the Stoic worry. So I have a question for you. Um, so um, given the emphasis on nature, uh, it's you can't be a Stoic or an Epicurean without a theory of what nature is, an appreciation of nature, but also a fear of what nature can do. I suppose some people in the audience are wondering, what, what would it matter to us today, given the ec- ecological crisis that we're on the verge of, if not entirely in? How would being an Epicurean or Stoic help us confront what nature is doing to us or we're doing to it. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, obviously this is a, a modern worry in the way that we're yes. experiencing it from day to day, but I think both philosophies can approach it. I mean, my way of looking at it from the Stoic point of view would be the interdependency of life. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all, I mean, the sun, the sun and the moon and the, the stars 
we all share these things. Water, I mean, all, all the basic building blocks of our life system are shared with other creatures. But, but what we're realizing, of course, in the last you know, uh, few, few years is how rapidly we, we can destroy this. And although that was not a threat for the Stoics at the time that they were living, I think they have a, their, their sort of in notion of the causal, in the causal dependence of everything in nature. Uh, everything in Stoicism has a cause. Nothing happens without a, without a, an act, you know, a, a, everything has a consequence and everything has a cause. And so our consequential behavior is, is of the utmost importance to us. And insofar as life is of, of supreme value, as it is, I think, for at least life lived well, life cannot be lived well in the way we're behaving in the planet at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I would just add humility. I think that's the one one thing that we get out of at least Lucretius is a certain sense of humility in the face of the world. And, of course, interdependence is everything. I agree entirely. He would agree entirely with that. So probably what we, what he, if Epicurus or Lucretius was alive today, he'd probably just be critiquing us for our hubris towards the way we act in the world. And he would be encouraging us to think in a very different way about the consequences of our actions. Yeah, so I totally agree with you. I think in some ways it cycles back really beautifully to this um, unfamiliar conception of freedom because in so much of Western philosophy, human self-realization is depicted as the mastery over our natural determination and our conditions. And in both these philosophies, the sense of freedom, while it differs pretty widely, um, is, is, uh, is, is conditioned by inside of nature and inside of us insofar as we are nature and, and not over and against it. And so in, in the, the strangest, most alien, alien thing I think about the Epicurean sense of freedom is that any freedom we possess is sort of the same as that weird little random characteristic that's inscribed in the very heart, atomistic beginnings of the universe, the tendency of things to sort of deviate by chance. We have to understand our own ability to, um, as he says, you know, escape the bonds of fate in the exact same terms. Now we'd like to open up the floor to questions. We're going to do this for 10 or 15 minutes, and I've been instructed to instruct you to make sure that uh, you ask a question, which is a sentence that ends with a question mark. <laughs> so we have, and I suppose it's more from the English uh, uh, social contract theorists like Locke and Hobbes, this concept, philosophy of the individual, and individualism, and social Darwinism. Now, there, was there a concept of the individual hmm. in Stoicism and uh, Epicureanism? No. Did they have, actually have... Because really we think of the birth of the individual in the Renaissance. But they don't have a concept of human rights. In the I mean, modern sense, I think human rights probably does start in the 16th, 17th century. And I think that's, you know, with the Lockean notion of uh, individual liberty and, and ownership... Uh, that, that, I think, is, is fairly foreign to all of classical antiquity, wouldn't you say, Jim? Um, that doesn't mean that they don't have um, aspects of their social theory which address individuals. They recognize, typically, that individuals, individual human beings, you know, of, whether male or female, uh, whoever they are at what stage of their life, will have different characteristics. So 
it, it's, I mean, there's nothing like a kind of Judeo-Christian Ten Commandments, this is what you do. These are not prescriptive philosophies at all in, in terms of what they're saying about behavior. Um, but there is, I think, a, so the recognition of human individual difference, but not the notion that you, each one of us in this room is this sort of unique individual whom, you know, has has special rights just by being virtue of the, being an individual. I think that's... So they, they, they think of men as a social animal. Much more, I think. Yeah. Yes. Rather than as an I individual. Think so. I think so. Even so it would be the difference between, uh, let's say, philosophy of individualism and the principle of individuation. So you individuate within the social context, sure. but you're not separate or independent from that context, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and also, um, this is my own little twist on this, but I would think that <clears throat> one could develop... Um, a notion that the, uh, at least uh, I think for both the Stoics and the Epicureans, some, a notion of an unbounded self, one that's not autonomous but rather is porous and open to influences from the outside. It's a very deeply ingrained Greek philosophical thought. It goes all the way back to the pre-Socratics. And it's a very healthy idea too because it does counteract the idea, this notion of the individual. The individual is not an atom. It's not until you get to Marx that you get that kind of reading. I was just going to say the same thing. It helps to actually think about it really literally in, in, in Epicurean thought and for Lucretius, the only individuum, the only indivisible thing is an atom. That's the only thing that can exist in that kind of solid singleness. Mm-hmm. So every other kind of body is what's called a, is a contexture. It's interwoven plurality of many bodies. And that's our vulnerability and softness at the same time, the porosity, um, and the fact that we subsist on, on parts of, of other beings around and, and before us. I, I don't want to dominate this, but, <laughs> I, I, but so I'm curious about the notion of freedom then. Mm. Because if we're social animals, then we have to have a concept of social freedom. Freedom not just for myself, because I'm not an individual, but freedom for all mankind. Mm. Right? Mm. And so I, I, I didn't understand the differences or commonalities between those two philosophers. Mm-hmm. And then if there's a social, if we're social beings and freedom is, is something that we all embrace socially, then there has to be political consequences to this. We can't divorce ourselves from the political arena yeah. if we're social animals yeah. Yeah. because by nature a social animal is a political creature. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. So I'm not sure that, because you made a distinction between society, social, right. and, and politics, right? right. Well, in the case of resignation and all of that. So I didn't understand how those are tied together. Okay, can I just answer from the point of view of the Stoics? So the Stoics distinguish different senses of freedom. I mean, there's the difference between an emancipated person and a slave. That's political freedom, it's social freedom. It, it has nothing to do with the worth of the persons. One person is unfortunate enough to be enslaved, the other is fortunate enough to be free. The kind of freedom that interests them is what, what they defined as the, the possibility of, of independent, autonomous action. And that's meant to be a, a function of the mind and one's attitude and one's emotional content, not one's freedom of movement. So remember what I said about Socrates is not in prison because he's there by his own free will. That's a very different concept from anything we're familiar with, I think, in everyday, in our everyday life. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm, I was interested in, in understanding for the two philosophies the degree to which I, I was really struck with what you said about dignity having some uh, attempt to look inside and find the fulfillment of yourself. 
to what degree did the philosophies see individuals as similar, and to what degree does looking inside and finding yourself mean individuation and separation and difference? In other words, how, how much is similarity among humans an element of each one, and how much is an acceptance of difference in potential and meaning for each life? That's uh, <laughs> a, a, a big question and a very good one. Um, Stoicism does have a normative theory of human excellence, so it's not a matter of making up our own values. So, I mean, whether we're talking about three or four people with different temperaments and characteristics, the good life for each one of them would be have many features in common, according to, according to the Stoics. There's a, in other words, there are many ways of being bad, innumerable ways of being bad, but in a sense, there's only one way of being good. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that, that being good is all that there is to a person. Somebody plays the piano, somebody else plays chess. But the notion of the virtues, the virtues that define human excellence, are meant to have common common characteristics, so to be generous, to be uh, kindly, uh, to be just, would be, as it were, norms that would transcend individuality. Uh, That would be the thing. And on the Epicurean side, it's a little bit harder to say. Um, There's a great respect, if you like, an awarding of dignity to variation in the world. And that this pluriformality of everything is different from everything else and the world is full of variety and so are individual, not just species but individuals within species and that kind of respect for difference is just ingrained into the philosophy so um, there's less moral rigorism that you, as of the sort that you would find, there's no one way to be good, no one way to have pleasure or to be happy on the Epicurean view, um, but there are just many ways and um, and probably they do vary from person to person. I would guess. Yeah. I think that nature in Epicurus and and I'm 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 speaking of it prim- as an English professor primarily through the poet Lucretius, but is a principle of diversification of variety at its very basis. So, but nature means difference, a perpetual difference machine. Um, and there's some really moving images in in um, Lucretius's great poem De Rerum Natura about, um, for instance cows recognizing their calves among what appears to us to be just a flock of of animals of the exact same kind. So I think it would be fair to say that genera and species are abstractions over um, a a, a fundamental uh, variety for Lucretius. In a way, everyone would be a species of one, not out of individualism, but just out of the, the fantastical contingencies and multiplicities that produce each each being. Yeah, that's right. It's a beautiful passage. So my question is about introversion and extroversion. Um, When you were describing the Stoics, it seemed in some ways very introverted. In other words, I'm not going to change what's happening out there. I'm going to make the adjustment in here. And when you were talking about the Epicureans, it seems in a way quite extroverted because... Everything is based on these social relationships. So I'm just wondering about introverted, extroverted elements in these two ways of looking at the world. I'm not sure that they break down according to schools. I think that maybe I I understand it's a different overlay. But if there's any way you can connect it, I'd appreciate it. Uh, If I could just start with um, with the Stoics, so. 
<clears throat> the, uh, the Stoics are both introverts and extroverts. Um, they have moments where they retreat into what they call the inner citadel, which is the fortress within us that is secure, fenced off by reason and rationality, uh, which fences us off from the incursions of the outside and fate. At other moments, they recognize, as Tony was saying, that they also belong to this greater divine spirit of nature, which pervades the entire world. And they are, like Adams in the Epicurean view, uh, dispersed through the world as well, the individuals are. So there, there are these two sides, and they may both be true. Uh, why do we have to decide? Um, that's all. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Epicurus can appear extroverted in the sense that, you know, his, his social values uh, of, of friendship imply uh, relationships, and the Stoics can appear introverted because they don't think that anything external is, is good. The only real good is this internal quality of mind. But, but those, again, can be then turned around. Epicurus said there's no greater pleasure than doing philosophy. And that and philosophy is, you know, in many ways, a solitary and introverted activity. Uh, and the Stoics say that we cannot possibly live the good life unless we're doing everything in our power to bring about, you know, happiness for other people. So it, it, it's a matter of perspective, I think. Although, although... Philosophy, <laughs> philosophy can be very uh, a social activity as well. Um, teaching, uh, uh, having polemics, disagreeing, um, dealing with uh, with you know with one's pupils and with one's friends. So it's a uh, it's hard to really dis- make fine distinctions between the to make fine po- polar distinctions in either school. Uh, hi, on the same lines of freedom. Um, Speak into the mic. Uh, um, so it seems to me the way that uh, freedom has been described has been something along the lines of recognizing where you're actually bounded in some sense, like really seeing how free you really aren't. Um, and yep. so I, I feel like the use of the language of even like freedom itself might be a little misleading mm-hmm. uh, in terms of not... I guess, characterizing the extent to which we are bonded. Um. But within those bounds, you have great potential for action and reflection and interaction. So it's only within... I mean, for instance, is someone playing a chess game free or not free to make moves? And You're restricted. A horse can only go, a knight can only go in certain ways. But it has infinite ways that it can move on the t- on the board. Um, I, yes, I mean, I, as a hardcore <laughs> determinist, I would say, I would say even if, um, you know, wherever you, you play your next chess move, that's still a product of whatever billions of factors that weren't in yeah. your control to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, like, using a word like uh, like me, freely following the rules of the English language right now, that seems like a foolish thing for me to take responsibility yeah. of. Yeah. Um, in that same regard, I think... It's, it's kind of odd to label ourselves as free individuals when we have this recognition of this immense, uh, like, trillions of factors going into each moment. No, a very, a very fair comment, and I think a fair criticism to some extent of, um, of, of the way Stoics may speak. Would you put, make the same point if we were living in a, in a slave-based society? Do you think that that's... That historical contingency may be influencing 
the the value that's being put upon this internal freedom. It would, w- how would you feel about that? Correctly. Um, the, I mean, I mean uh, again, even uh, by virtue of me being allowed to come to a place like this and exercise this part of my brain, again, seems to be something uh, that is a product of something out of my control. Like possibly if I was a slave with a very wise slave friend. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I do think it really does come down to this lack of a, autonomy in our situation. I think there's another dimension in which that is um, at one remove in which we haven't really been discussing freedom because there's sort of the the senses of freedom that are licensed on the inside of the metaphysical system. And then this gets at your point a little bit, Tony. There's a question of kind of the strategic use or occupation of a philosophical position in history. And so one thing that I wanted to kind of point out about both these traditions is that something like um, Stoic and Epicurean naturalism in the Renaissance and then again in the Enlightenment and the and the uh, uh, series of political re- revolutions it set off. Um, uh, th- these were h- highly uh, politicized positions to take. And in a way, the language of, um, of the philosophical naturalism that was revised in the, uh, revived in the Renaissance and then again in the 18th century with great excitement, it's like inscribed in the liberatory documents of the United States Constitution and the French um, Declaration of the Rights of Man. So something like the, this bizarre language we have about um, re- about about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness was not really like a Hallmark card emotion. You know, this is something that comes out of what these philosophies did to kind of legitimize. Um, uh, uh, the will to have a, a, a pleasurable terrestrial life over and against a whole different kind of philosophical heritage, a, a Christian or Puritanical one that only valued what was coming afterwards and, that, and, and, and knew how to, only saw suffering in this world as virtuous, just as a for instance. So that might be a way that we can see these philosophies as more elastically related to freedom than, than in, in, you know, in the terms that are inscribed within the systems themselves. So I was curious, you were talking about the origins of how there was philosophical, or not philosophical, but scientific ideas such as the atomic idea that catalyzed these philosophical systems. And seeing as how we've had this revolutionary idea of quantum mechanics that has completely turned physics upside down. Is there a way to marry that idea and viewpoint of the world with these philosophical systems? Or does that idea undermine any of the parts of the philosophies that were based off of a less complete idea of the physical world? Or do you think that something as radical as quantum mechanics constitutes a brand new philosophical system? Mm enough about quantum mechanics so I don't (laughs) what I was mainly trying to reference was how it's not purely deterministic like a lot of other physical sciences are mainly based off of basically there are these set variables and those variables will act in a very specific way given the circumstances but quantum mechanics is more it acknowledges more how there's chance within the physical world and even though the same circumstances and variables will be exactly the same 
if that situation is carried out multiple times, even though initially it's the same in the beginning, it'll have different end products. Yeah. And, and, never, and will never repeat itself in an infinite loop? In an infinite loop, no. Oh. There's the, bound to be deviation. I mean, I, Tony knows more I mean, about I don't, I know anything. Except, I mean, I, I happen to have a friend, a Birkin mathematician, who, who teaches me a bit. But, is, I mean, it's going to be absolutely, as you say, at the microscopic level. But isn't it the macroscopic level, the human world, if you will, um, I mean, the laws of Newton's laws of motion are still going to be totally operative as far as everyday life is concerned. So, I mean, I don't. I guess we don't know where it may go in the end. But these variations that you know, the same particle can appear in two different places. That kind of uh, possibility at the moment we don't doesn't make any any observable difference, does it, to anything? I actually do think that there are connections to post-classical physics, which is a funny turn of phrase in this context. Um, okay. But so, so one of them that I'm thinking of is in in relativity theory, the kind of reimbrication or reincorporation of the position of the observer in the scientific experiment. Uh, so that's something that relates to this uh, early notion that actually, like, we are not. Uh, extrinsic or standing over and against and apart from the objects of observation. And I haven't, I don't know the quantum mechanics question, but I do know that Epicurus and Lucretius have been summoned for um, chaos and complexity theory. So in terms of really understanding forms of recursive and second order causation and the emergence of phenomena that are not um, actually present at the level of component parts, um, uh, the, the, these ideas have been revived in that context. I have one small thought on that, which is that maybe uh, atomism was set up, and maybe stoicism too, as um, creating a, a physical field that we could never understand. And that sounds to me like what quantum mechanics does too. <laughs> yeah. So you set that off in the background, and then you live your life. <laughs> and so in that sense, they're perfectly in tune. <laughs> I'm going to chime in here. and I've just been reflecting on this really powerful conversation tonight. I'm sure we learned a lot. I want to just make sure I got this right because I was thinking about my kids and, and quantum mechanics, and it made me think of The Lion King. Um, I think we've all seen that. And I'm thinking of Mufasa as a Stoic with the circle of life theory and Timon and Pumbaa as the Epicureans, right? You know, Hakuna Matata, no worries. And then, and then we have Scar as the cynic who, uh, so, so we even see Disney trying to take, take something from 300 BC and teach our kids a thing or two. So I get that about right. We didn't get to talk about cynics tonight. I know that was kind of off the table. But uh, it was really a fascinating night. I know our guests tonight will stick around uh, to answer some questions. Uh, we have a, a number of books here that uh, they've all recommended. Um, I, I want to mention Amanda just wrote a book on a different topic. So she's got a book called Sweet Science, uh, Romantic Materialism and New Logics of Life. Uh, not on this topic, but uh, came out in 2017 on Amazon. So uh, look that up. Check her out on LinkedIn along with uh, our other authors tonight. And uh, thank you all for coming. It's been a terrific night. <laughs>